Good afternoon. It's Wednesday the 9th of September 2020, just after one o'clock. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me via video link uh, is Brian Gerrish. Uh, welcome to the programme, Brian. Yes, thank you. Perhaps we should just say to viewers that there's been a bad accident down in Plymouth, so uh, I'm doing this from home. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and Alex Thompson. Welcome, Alex. Good afternoon, Mike. No accidents over here in Holland, but glad to be joining you through the usual means. Uh, absolutely. Now, so let's get straight on. And of course, the announcement will be coming this afternoon uh, that from the 14th of September, there'll be uh, no more social gatherings allowed uh, for uh, numbers greater than six. Uh, and this uh, is confusing uh, Coroni somewhat uh, because apparently under the new rules, uh, Coroni confused once again because uh, apparently he can't be caught if you're at a wedding or a funeral. Uh, he can't be caught if you're at school. Uh, he can't be caught if you're at work and he can't be caught if you're involved in organized team sport. Uh, but you, he can be caught if you're in a pub or a restaurant where from now on you will not be allowed to be in groups bigger than six uh, and from one household only. And if there are more than one group in the pub or the restaurant at a time, those groups will have to be socially distanced. Uh, and uh, where two households meet indoors or outdoors. So two, two households no longer allowed to meet indoors or outdoors from the 14th of September. Uh, so Brian, uh, Caroni is confused. Are you? Um, no, Mike, I'm not confused in the slightest. It's very clear that what we've now got is a massive psychological attack on people's minds. Um, the government lying from the outset about what's, uh, what's happened with a, a winter flu virus. This is designed to confuse people, pressurise people and stress them. And why do you want to do that? Because in that condition, they're even easier to um, effectively apply further brainwashing. And a little bit later in the news, we're going to have a look at some of the things that are happening. So this is a dangerous psychological attack on the British public. And who is doing it? I think we've got to start asking who is actually running government at the moment, because it's clear even MPs don't know. Um, well, of course, uh, what this is all leading up to is, is a vaccine, because the only way we can get back to the new normal is uh, is through a vaccine. Uh, that's what we're told. Um, so everybody would be glad to, glad to know that a number of uh, vaccine companies, uh, companies providing or researching vaccines for coronavirus at the moment, uh, have made a pledge. This is the COVID-19 Vaccine pledge, vaccine maker pledge. I've uh, taken the Pfizer website here. Uh, and uh, this is what they say. We, the undersigned biopharmaceutical companies, want to make clear our ongoing commitment to developing and testing potential vaccines for COVID-19 in accordance with high ethical standards and sound scientific principles. Uh, and uh, they said, following guidance from expert regulatory authorities such as FDA, uh, regarding the development of the COVID-19 vaccines consistent with existing standards and practices and the interests of public health, we pledge to always make the safety and well-being of vaccinated individuals our top priority, continue to adhere to high scientific and ethical standards regarding the conduct of clinical trials and the rigour of manufacturing processes, only submit for approval or emergency use authorization after demonstrating safety and efficacy through a phase three clinical study that is designed to be and conducted to meet requirements of expert regulatory authorities such as FDA. 
uh, and work to ensure a sufficient supply and range of vaccine options, including those suitable for global access. Um, and so uh, that was a number of, uh, of the vaccine companies, including Pfizer and AstraZeneca, uh, signed up to that, which is all a bit unfortunate because unfortunately AstraZeneca has had to uh, suspend uh, their latest trials. Um, now, it's a bit strange because when you look at the AstraZeneca website and their press releases, well, in fact, there's nothing about this uh, on this. They do have the uh, Biopharma Leaders Unite to Stand with Science press release, which I've just read out, uh, but nothing to do with the fact that they've had to suspend their trial. Uh, and this has apparently happened because of what's being described as a significant, uh, a suspected serious adverse reaction in a participant in the United Kingdom. Uh, so a spokesperson for AstraZeneca said that uh, standard review process triggered a pause in into vaccination to allow review of safety data. And then they followed up with a further statement which said uh, that uh, the nature of the reaction uh, wasn't immediately known, so we don't know. It's been described as a serious, uh, serious adverse reaction, but we don't know exactly what that is. Uh, the participant, everybody would be glad to know, is expected to recover. Uh, and uh, they described it as a routine action, uh, which has to happen whenever there's a potentially unexplained illness in one of the trials while it's investigated, ensuring we maintain the integrity of the trials. Uh, but they're working to expedite the review of the single event to minimize any potential impact on the trial deadline. Uh, so um, that's a bit unfortunate. Uh, on the same day that they, they release a press release, Brian uh, saying that they're committed to uh, vaccine safety and they're going to uh, make all those pledges uh, that they've unfortunately had to suspend one of the major, in fact, the, the leading front running trial uh, because of an adverse event. Well, um, we could say it's unfortunate, but really the statement that they made is tosh. Uh, that's the best word I can come up with at the moment, utter tosh, because, of course, these pharmaceutical companies don't fully investigate the dangers of their own products. And they make sure that anybody who's questioning the uh, safety of their products does not have an easy route to get that information out to the public. So these are just words. This is confetti, smokescreen from Big Pharma. And uh, was it a routine action uh, by the pharmaceutical company or was it a routine accident? Because everywhere we look at vaccines, we find these unfortunate accidents where people are being damaged. They claim that the person is going to recover, but of course they've no idea whether that person will have serious effects um, 10, 5, 10, 15 years down the line. So these are very, very dangerous times when our personal health and welfare is just being handed over to giant corporations who are only interested in making money. Uh, absolutely. But uh, Brian, we've had an email in on this subject. Uh, well, we have. And as always, I'm absolutely delighted to see people really engaging. It's a very simple email, but I think it's worth reading out because it's it's powerful. The story in the mainstream media that we've just covered doesn't mention what the serious adverse reaction is, but the vaccine trials have been stopped due to it. So for them to stop when they have no liability, it must be bad. Or it's just another reason to delay the vaccine and to bring in another long lockdown because we know we won't have the old normal until the uh, until the poison until they poison us all with a vaccine. They've already changed groups of 30 
uh, to groups of six, but not until Monday because the virus is clever and will leave everyone in groups alone until then. Aha. But it does mention the mild adverse reactions from the stage two of the trials. Surprise, surprise, they're all symptoms of COVID. So I say that once again, it's very encouraging to see people really starting to lift the stone and look at what the government's really saying and question it. And they're coming up with very astute comments which are starting to spread. So for our viewers and listeners, please keep doing that. Uh, now, uh, shortly, we're going to be coming back onto the subject of, of uh, behavioural change and behavioural insights team. Uh, but uh, speaking of behaviour and, and uh, behavioural change, uh, the, the BBC uh, posted this uh, yesterday, I suppose. Uh, Boodle COVID-19 hoax claims salon to be visited by police. So what they're saying is here, a beauty salon that banned coronavirus talk and said COVID-19 does not exist is being investigated by police. Skin care sal salon in Boodle put posters in its windows and posted online uh, stating masks weren't being worn by staff as you can't catch what doesn't exist. Merseyside police said that officers would visit the salon in Entry Road to remind the owner and staff of the responsible responsibilities around COVID-19. Uh, Brian, that's, uh, that's quite spectacular. Uh, well, it is, but I think we're just going to see more of this um, confrontation occurring because people are getting uh, very unsettled, very worried about what's happening. Some people are now stepping forward. I think they're very brave to do it in the way that they're doing it. Uh, they're challenging the system. What's the system, system going to do? It's going to attempt to clamp down on anybody, and that includes the UK column, anybody that dares challenge what this, I can't even call it a government, this is a cabal running the country, what this cabal says. Um, okay, now let's uh, move on, Brian, to uh, Cornwall. And the headline here is "Idea of New Council Covering Whole Southwest Angers Cornwall Council Members." So we're talking about significant constitutional change here. Uh, we are talking about massive constitutional change, but of course we shouldn't be surprised because regionalisation of UK was fully part of uh, European Union policy and was over a great many years. UK to be divided up into regions, Scotland and Wales, obviously regions in their own right, and the remainder, the remainder of uh, England to be broken up. But we're supposed to have left the uh, European Union, and yet here we are with a major article in the paper where uh, the EU regionalisation process is being rammed forward. And of course, it's being done once again under this wonderful cover of COVID. Everybody's preoccupied with COVID, so they're not watching what's happening uh, with this, this massive attack on our constitution. And I've got to say that I'm immensely cynical to see that local MP Gary Streeter is at the forefront of this. Interestingly enough, on the picture, um, he's uh, hidden in the background, but he's, he's there in the headline. And so Gary Streeter pushing ahead with this policy and the word we crops up in the article. Well, who's making all these decisions? Because I don't know anybody uh, locally uh, and I'm in um, Gary Streeter's constituency. I don't know anybody locally who wants to see this massive regional state. In fact, people want the opposite. They want more power back to local communities. So. 
we've got to ask why is EU policy being pushed through at this very confused time with COVID? Um, well, just before we come on to a bit more of that, uh, let me bring Alex onto the programme. Uh, Alex, uh, we'll come on to Brexit a little bit later and of course this new legislation which is coming coming out today, it's being published today, dealing with the internal market uh, of the UK. So that's uh, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh, and there are lots of concerns or there's the reason for this uh, new legislation, as we'll discuss later, is uh, devolution is right at the front and centre of that for the requirement for that legislation. At least this is what the government is, is saying. So, uh, you know, if we're talking about taking uh, county councils and, and, and city councils and merging them into one Uber council, what happens to the southwest? Does it become effectively a mini nation state like Wales and Scotland at that point? Uh, I think it does, Mike. I think mini nation state is exactly the idea. Um, Brian has in the past often pointed out uh, the long-term interests of EU strategic planners and before them the Second Reich and the Third Reich in the southwest of England. This may seem a bit laughable to some, but both world wars were preceded or accompanied by uh, German uh, high command maps showing the splitting off of Cornwall or more of the southwestern peninsula of England. And in some versions, that part of the country was labelled England and the rest would be under direct German domination. It would be like a theme park of, uh, of uh, Arthurian England basically down there. Um, it's actually got quite a trail to it, uh, this agenda. Uh, as I say, Brian, Brian has mentioned in the past an organisation with known by the acronym FUEN, the Federation of um, European Nations. And in German, that acronym is FUEV. The V there stands for Völkergruppen, people groups. But if you look before the Second World War, in the interwar period, uh, that existed as the Congress of European Nationalities. I mean, it's, it's too long to go into in a lunchtime format, but there has been a long uh, term thinking based particularly in Germany uh, that if you start with the southwest of England and appeal to its Celtic history in Cornwall and the Arthurian history in Devon, Somerset and Dorset, you can hive it off from the rest of England. And that's a particular strategic and naval interest, of course, that part of the country. Um, but with, yes, we could go anyway with this. But if you think about the local government uh, being smashed in various waves, 1974 under Heath, 1986 under Thatcher, and then again in circa 2007, wasn't it, across the UK in all the home nations under Blair, there's a seamless transition. It seems to have been a civil service and EU policy because it goes over the handover years of 1979 and 1997. The same policy keeps carrying on. We now end up with a situation where, uh, as Wales has effectively become a jurisdiction of its own, de facto, not de jure, we now have lockdowns within Wales, Caerphilly being the, um, the one that we hear about overnight. So uh, effectively, the only purpose of county councils from now on, we don't even have district councils, we have borough councils in most cases, the county councils are there to obey either the devolved authorities or Brussels directly. Um, the, any concept of British local democracy seems to have gone out the window at this stage. Uh, absolutely. Okay, Brian, uh, let's come back to you then. And uh, we have a little bit of video to show. Uh, you were clearly browsing the, uh, the YouTube or, so, or something like that and, and came across an advertisement. I, I was watching a, a video last night and basically an automatic video advert popped up. 
Um, I watched it and it was quite incredible for a number of reasons, particularly by the end. But before we show that little clip, can I just add on the, on the previous subject that uh, if people want to know what was we were really talking about many years ago, it was this organisation, uh, FUEN, which uh, Alex has just described. They were working very, very hard behind the scenes to help wind up um, Cornish nationalism. Uh, they were working with groups who, who were trying to promote the power of stannery towns again. And this was going hand in hand with the fact that, of course, the European Union was effectively buying the loyalty of local county councils and Cornwall County Council by pumping in the grant money. So remember that. We had a I'm going to call it a quasi-Nazi organisation, or the roots of it was quasi-Nazi, acting through the EU, trying to pull apart the structure of UK by focusing on Cornwall. Now let's have a look at this video clip. And uh, it was really entertaining because this is calling for people to get back shopping in Plymouth. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you for following the guidelines on shopping safely. We're looking forward to seeing you. Shop safe and shop for Plymouth. Shop safe and shop for Plymouth. Shop safe, shop for Plymouth. have it and uh, just in case anybody couldn't actually hear what was going on that was a little video advert it starts in a very glowing way but it's uh, calling for people to come back and shop in Plymouth and why do you want to do that well because Plymouth has got really the best uh, Covid arrangements in the country if you come into Plymouth that nasty little virus isn't going to get you because there's footprints on the pavements and social distancing and special protection. So worth coming to Plymouth just to experience the uh, anti-COVID measures. But it was the sting right at the end of that video. And I'm not sure whether people will have caught it. So let's put it up on screen because of what, of course, what you see on the screen is that um, uh, this isn't really a Plymouth-based advertisement at all. It clearly says at the end that this is a video which has been produced by HM Government. If you press the magic button, thank you, Mike. Uh, we've got HM Government, but who else? Well, on the left, I was amazed to see that we've got uh, EU uh, regional development funds coming in. So but we've, but we've, left, we've left the EU, Brian. Well, if you press the button again, I asked that question on the on the slide. We're supposed to have left the European Union, but here we are in September 2020. And thank you very much, Plymouth City Council, because you must have approved this uh, video. We're being told, no, we haven't left the European Union because Her Majesty's government, whoever that is, is working with the European Union in order to drive the COVID social distancing control agenda. 
this is very, very interesting because we know that we haven't left the European Union with respect to the military. That's very, very clear. Now we can see that the government is working hand in glove with the European Union to control us in a social sense. I don't know whether Alex would like to comment on that one, but I think this is in your face. I think the, the best I can do at this stage is for people to have a look at the organisation F-U-E-N. And uh, if you just start with the Wikipedia article for good or for real, you will see if you follow it through that the founder was a gentleman who disappeared in the Soviet Far East shortly before the Second World War. The word in the Soviet Union was always that Stalin suspected him of being a German spy. And uh, there have been French writers as well, notably Pierre Hillard, the surname is spelt like Hillard. Uh, who've written whole books about F-U-E-V, as it is in the German acronym, and uh, how Helmut Kohl built his career on German expansionism in the 70s and 80s by getting German ethnic minorities in all of the neighbouring countries uh, to say, well, we have our loyalty to the state. We're in France, Italy, Poland, Czechoslovakia, but we're Germans for first and foremost. And that strategy seems to be uh, exported now uh, so that it's not, you know, we're Cornish and English or British, but we're Cornish first and we have a loyalty to the EU. Uh, this is very strongly the case in Northern Ireland and Scotland, where people are being told, well, your identity is your first a Scot, second a European or vice versa, and there's no space left for the United Kingdom. Uh, that That's now got to the point where it can be pushed on the Celtic fringe of England's southwest upwards. Yes, Brian. So totally agree with that. And this is very insidious. It's divisive. It's calculated. This is calculated policy to break down a nation state and the regionalization, which uh, we're now seeing uh, pushed in the local uh, paper, is, of course, EU policy. So we haven't left the EU. This is this was the UK columns constant warning that Brexit was without the exit, it was a lie, and now we're seeing the evidence for it. And I'm just going to add, if you want some good news, I sense panic that the cabal running this country are now really starting to panic. They've got to try and push their policies through because they know that time isn't on their side. Um, well, of course, uh, at the heart of uh, the breakup of Britain is the breakup of Britain's economy. Uh, and, uh, well, we know that for a number of months now, people, a lot of people, several million people, have been sitting on the furlough scheme, the government's furlough scheme, to keep them uh, at least notionally employed uh, through the, the worst of the so-called lockdown. Um, and, uh, well, uh, Andy Haldane, who is the uh, Bank of England's chief economist, uh, was commenting on this uh, today, and he's saying uh, our job as policymakers is to assess how we can best cushion the necessary adjustment. And what's he talking about? Well, he's saying that the the uh, British economy has to adjust. He doesn't explain exactly how it's meant to adjust or what it's adjusting to. But he was speaking on the City AM podca podcast this morning, and he was suggesting very strongly that Rishi Sunak should not attempt to extend uh, the uh, furlough scheme in the same way that the Germans have extended the furlough scheme uh, because they have extended uh, the furlough scheme for uh, a, a year uh, longer. So he went on to say this, uh, we need to recognise we are undergoing a period of change and there's need to help those 
affected, uh, those people affected adjust quickly. So we're going through a period of change. Not sure how that happened, but we'll come on to that. Uh, ever elongating the coronavirus job retention scheme would not allow the necessary process of adjustment to take place. Uh, so this is his position. And so the question then is, what is he talking about? And to get an answer to that, I think we need to go back to about a year ago, possibly a little less than a year ago. Uh, and uh, well, this report was produced by the Bank of England, uh, reducing UK emissions 2019 progress report to Parliament. Uh, and uh, sorry, this is from the Committee on, Ch on Climate Change, I do apologise. Uh, and it says, it finds that the UK action to curb greenhouse gas emissions is lagging behind what is needed to meet legally binding emissions targets. Since June 2018, government has delivered only one of 25 critical policies needed to get emissions reductions back on track. Uh, the re report recommends that uh, net zero policy is embedded across all levels of, and departments of government. Uh, the government policies to reduce emissions to net zero are business friendly, uh, the, but it also recommends that the public are fully engaged in the U UK's net zero uh, transition and that the UK strongly leads international action uh, to tackle climate change. And one of the things that this report said at the time uh, was that if uh, there isn't some kind of significant change in the UK public's behaviour, that there was no possibility of the government meeting its climate change uh, objectives. Uh, and the question at the time when we were covering this on the UK Column News, the question that we asked was, well, what on earth is coming uh, that could possibly create that, the, the degree of behavioural change necessary to support that? Uh, now, in, order to, in, in support of this uh, uh, Committee on Climate Change uh, report, uh, Mark Carney was making statements such as this. He said companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. So if you don't adapt to the policy, the, the, green, the new green economy policy, uh, then you will go bankrupt. Uh, Carney said uh, there will be industries, sectors and firms that do very well during this process because they will be part of the solution. But there will also be ones that lag behind and they will be punished and this was the language that he used. Uh, and Brian, um, I'm going to suggest to you at this point uh, that what we're seeing from Mr. Haldane today uh, in, in suggesting that, uh, that Rishi Sunak does not extend the furlough scheme because really there's a transition going on, uh, there's massive change going on, and if he was to extend that, that would only slow down the change and really isn't for the benefit of people uh, in the longer term. Uh, he is simply uh, taking... He is. Uh, pursuing this policy that the Bank of England has been right behind from the beginning and, and Mark Carney talking about putting businesses out of business that were not compatible with the green economy. That's exactly what we're saying, isn't it? Uh, you're muted. Should be back online, sorry yeah. about that. Um, there's no question of this. Um, we have got policies running in the background that have not been declared to the British public. We're just, we've just discussed how uh, UK is to be broken up into regions as part of EU policy. That's all going ahead. We've got the government drive um, for climate change never really discussed with the British public. Just um, It's just been forced into existence. And as part of dealing with the climate change they say is happening, um, they want to get rid of small businesses. 
So uh, when when uh, Mark Carney's talking about them being punished, uh, well, he doesn't really mean punished because they're not going to exist. They're going to be simply cut out. The only people who are going to be able to exist are the big form, are the big pharmaceutical companies and the big global companies. That's who they want. And as always happens with the UK column news, we, we don't plan it on a day-to-day -day basis. We get it put together at very short notice. Uh, but a little bit later, I'm going to be talking about the use of the behavioural insights team in order to nudge students into adhering with this climate, pe pe uh, climate change policy. So every direction we go, we see them driving for people to support the actions they say are needed to, to uh, combat climate change. And this is another great lie. Uh, and under the guise of, uh, of Coroni? And uh, well, Coroni is, is the dynamic which has been unleashed in order to get these changes. They knew that people, if they just came up and the average politician said, oh, I think we need to get rid of small businesses, of course, people would have told them where to go. So they've created this massive dynamic to disrupt the whole flow of the nation's business in order to get their very, very dangerous and calculated policies through. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, on Monday, Brian, we were talking about uh, Piers Corbyn and the Sheffield uh, lockdown protest. Um, there was a, a gentleman, Rob, I believe was his name, was was injured at that uh, and required some uh, pretty significant me medical intervention uh, following that injury. Uh, we have a bit of video here, um, which seems to uh, to give us a bit more insight as to what actually happened. So, just take us through this. Uh, well, there's there's a series. This is one video, but it's been clipped just to make it a bit shorter. But essentially, here we're actually seeing just how violent and aggressive the police were. So the gentleman who took this video was was there with the camera, and he said the behaviour of the police was just quite extraordinary. They were brutal. They were aggressive. Now, possibly this is because the police were frightened. And why would they be frightened? Well, I could say that in their own briefings, they would be wound up to expect that anybody that dared challenge um, wearing a face mask or COVID was some sort of right-wing extremist. But they were simply brutal. And here we can see some of the police action. Now, this is taking place before uh, they bring out Piers Corbyn. We'll see that happen in a minute. Um, but it went on and on and on, and it got worse. So we should see any minute now, I think, them bring out Piers Corbyn. And we've got to remember that this man is 73 years old. He's a scientist. And all he's been doing is saying, I don't agree with the government. And he's surrounded by this aggressive mob of police. Look at it. We would be, if this was happening in Putin's Russia, this will be all over the BBC as brutality within the Russian system. And yet this is in Sheffield in Britain. And we've got one 73-year-old man. Now, watch this. The police are now approaching Rob, the man who ended up on the ground. Here's the push. He goes back over a granite stone or some piece of street furniture. And then he's, he's later has to, has to have... Um, emergency medical attention. Now, was that connected with the push? We, we can't say, 
but it does seem remarkable that the police push him to the ground. He sat on that great lump of stone for some time recovering before, or appearing to recover, before he then fell onto the ground. And uh, I think we've got to really ask, was that push responsible for a man so ultimately so badly hurt that he needed resuscitation in order to recover? And I've got to say, whose fault is it? Well, it's the fault of the police. There's no question of it because their behaviour was brutal. It was unacceptable on the day. Um, Brian, a number of years ago, there was a protest outside a court uh, in, in Liverpool uh, over council tax with Roger Hayes. Uh, and in the fracas that took place inside the courtroom, uh, a couple of police uh, found themselves being pushed or nudged. Uh, and actually, a couple of people went to prison for that. Um, what are the chances, do you think, that, uh, that there'll be any serious repercussions for the people that push Rob in that way? Oh, well, I, I think the answer to that is very easy, Mike. We're seeing across the country people are dying in police um, captivity. People in police cells are dying. And you always know what the result will be, that the police were not at fault, um, nothing to see go away. So if we're now at the stage where people are being killed, inside prison, uh, police prison facilities where the police have a duty of care to those people, they're not going to do anything to something that takes place on the street. And I'm going to add to that, I don't directly blame the Bobby on the beat for this sort of thing, because the, the police are going through some of the most horrific reframing courses uh, where they are being made aggressive. There's no question this is happening because we've got partners and spouses of police officers telling them that their police partners changed in personality as a result of training courses they went on. So this is back to applied behavioural psychology in order to make uh, Britain's police aggressive. And we're now paying the price. Yes. And uh, so who gave us that video clip then? Uh, well, a gentleman, called, I'm just going to call him Dylan M. He has given us uh, his full name, uh, but he's he's been there very close to the action on the streets in Sheffield. And he was so disgusted by what he captured on one of his videos that he sent it through to us. And that's the bit of video um, footage that we've just shown. And I'll also add with a smile, he was also the gentleman that managed to film those two police horses uh, that refused to go across the uh, rainbow LGBT crossing. So um, thank you very much, Dylan, for sending us that footage. OK, now uh, just a quick uh, reminder, if you'd like to support what the UK Column does, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there and that would be much needed and much appreciated. And uh, Brian, just a quick update on uh, David Noakes and Lynn Thayer. Yes, well... Um, it's, it's not good news, but maybe there's a little bit of a glimmer, a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we understand that if suitable accommodation can be found, there is a possible possibility that David Noakes um, could be released on bail, so he would at least be able to get out of prison and um, uh, be in comfortable accommodation while he waits trial. There's no guarantee that if accommodation is there, he will be released. Uh, but as I believe his legal team have said, 
if accommodation for him is available, then at least he's got a chance of being released to that accommodation. And I believe the same applies to Lynn Thayer. Um, so we know that there's been a couple of generous offers uh, made by people living in France, just to make sure everybody understands this is accommodation in France. It can't be out, out of France itself. Uh, but we understand that there have been some offers made. Those are being followed through. And we will have to wait and see whether they are suitable and indeed whether the French authorities are prepared to release either of them to bail at those addresses. Um, both David and Lynn very much suffering at the moment. It's clear that their letters are being withheld for very long or delayed rather for very long periods. And Lynn Thayer has been getting particularly frustrated because she keeps being given very complex um, legal documents to read, which are in French. Now, she, her French has improved dramatically since she's been in prison, but nevertheless, it's, it's totally unreasonable of the French authorities to expect her to uh, read a, le a complex legal document just in French. And she knows that if she does that and misunderstands something, she can be in big trouble. So it's quite clear that the French authorities are being very vindictive and devious with both David and Lynn. So it's, it's, it's a mixed report. We've got some good news, maybe, the possibility of them being released to bail. Um, but on the other hand, the French authorities are being very, very calculated and, and really quite nasty with them. And I'll just add, because Ian Crane was in the picture, for those of you who've been asking about Ian Crane, Ian is still at home. He's still undergoing alternative uh, therapy to help him um, with his um, condition. Uh, we've spoken to him quite recently. Mentally, he's all there and still very much fighting, but he has to deal with the physical aspects of, of his condition on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, three really good people in that little image all having a very tough time in their own way. And isn't it remarkable, just to come back on the subject, that, that uh, people standing up to help others with medical conditions end up in brutal conditions in a French jail. When this government said, well, no, 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 we're not going to play games with the European Union. We're going to come out of that system. What did the British government do? They sent David and Lynn Thayer um, to a terrible French prison, having said we were not going to adhere to EU legal practices. Uh, absolutely. Right. OK, let's uh, let's move on then to uh, to Alexei Navalny. Now, um, of course, uh, he was recently uh, he's still in a Berlin hospital. Recently, the, uh, the Berlin authorities uh, said that, uh, in fact, he had been poisoned with Novichok. Uh, and what's interesting is that there's been a statement has been uh, released today by the G7. Now, why is that interesting? Well, of course, we highlighted uh, the last time we spoke about this, uh, Theresa May's announcement back in 2018 in June or July uh, at the G7 at that time that that day the G7 leaders had agreed to establish a new rapid response mechanism and what this is is uh, an agreement between the G7 uh, that whenever there is an incident such as the Navalny incident uh, that a narrative will be constructed between all the members of the G7 they'll agree that narrative a common narrative and that's the narrative that will be pushed 
from that point forward. Uh, so they have uh, decided what their narrative is over uh, Navalny. And this is what they're saying. We, the G7 foreign ministers of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the United Kingdom, and the, the United States of America, and the high representative of the European Union, are united in condemning in the strongest possible terms the confirmed poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Germany has briefed G7 partners on the fact that clinical and toxicological findings by German medical experts and a specialized laboratory of the German armed forces have determined that Mr. Navalny is the victim of an attack with a chemical nerve agent of the Novichok group, a substance developed by Russia. Uh, we, the G7 foreign ministers, call on Russia to urgently and fully establish transparency on who is responsible for this abhorrent poisoning attack and bearing in mind Russia's commitments under the Chemical Weapons Convention to bring the perpetrators to justice, we call on Russia to fulfill its commitments under the International Covenant. Uh, oh, sorry, that, I didn't even have that on screen. Uh, on, on the International Co Covenant on Civil and Political Rights to guarantee these rights, including the right to freedom of expression to its citizens. So aside from not having that on screen, Alex, uh, let me ask you, um, what are your thoughts on this this situation that we have now where where the G7 nations decide on a narrative, they push that narrative, that that is the common narrative that everybody is going to uh, receive via the respective national uh, mainstream media channels. Um, where does that leave us when nobody can uh, disagree with anybody else on on the, the circumstances of an, an international event? It gives the lie to the G7's uh, new phrase of the rules-based international order, Mike, uh, or not the G7 specifically, but the same countries keep banging on about a rules-based international order. Rules has got to have a basis, hasn't it, in truth or logic or law, or preferably all of these. Yet narrative belongs to another layer completely of language, the layer of rhetoric, which is how I wish to present what I have decided. So there's no room for law, science, truth or logic when you get to narrative. It is how you spin. As for uh, the patent error in that G7 document, uh, Novichok is not a chemical. It is a group of chemicals. We are told it has this name Novichok, but uh, there's no solid information that it ever had that name at the time of being developed. And crucially, uh, Parche, that G7 foreign minister statement, it was not developed by Russia. Russia was not a state at the time. It was developed by the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, has since been replicated by the United States own admission in the United States. And we know of stocks having gone to several other countries. And for all his faults, Craig Murray has documented this on his blog at quite some length and with some authority because he visited the old laboratories that weren't even in Russia, but another republic of the USSR, Uzbekistan, where he was uh, for a time Britain's uh, ambassador those facilities were wound up and uh, dismantled by the United States. Uh, it's patently lying to say that Novichok as a chemical, which it isn't, was developed by Russia, which it wasn't. And as for the unity of the G7, I think we're on pretty flimsy ground here. Italy's come a little more back into the Western stable uh, with uh, Mr. Salvini's fall from grace. Uh, but Japan is going in a pro-Russian direction strategically and militarily, not least to contain China. So I wouldn't be surprised with the change of government that Japan is now going through uh, if Japan were to say uh, we will bow out of the next round of G7 blame sharing. Um, I mean, one of the things that's, that's striking about this is that they, they can keep banging the same old drum. Uh, you know, Russiagate in the States has failed. 
Uh, Salisbury poisoning. Well, I mean, how many people actually believe that story that was constructed around that? Um, and then, of course, we've had the Russia report uh, from the Intelligence Committee and the China report from Christopher Steele and Christopher Steele involved in every one of these uh, these events. But they don't seem to be able to come up with a, a new a new strategy or a new tactic. They keep banging the same drum. It, it, it can't work on a long term basis. Uh, unless people are too dumbed down or too afraid in the parts of society that matter to challenge it. And those parts of society are the chattering classes that meet on the fringe of Chatham House meetings, who then decide what the talking points are in the news, uh, which then decides what the middle class, broadly speaking, chatters about, having seen it uh, filtered through the BBC and The Guardian. But that's a diminishing return, that model, because so more and more people are not believing it. But it's a question of spooking people out. I remember pointing out to a civil engineer um, a fellow of David Scott's profession and another Scott, in fact, uh, uh, who, who I thought was very uh, sharp about this, the problems with the claims uh, last time Novichok was uh, gone on about in Salisbury. And uh, the, this gentleman did not come back at me with, I don't believe you or I can see the flaws in the story. But what were those Russian heavies doing in Salisbury? So it's cardboard cutout char characters taken from narrative, very Tavistockian, which are then put in front of us. like You know, that there's no whodunit list. There's no uh, murder weapon, place, opportunity, motive, uh, timing, all that stuff. That just goes out the window when we're dealing with spectres. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, the final uh, part of this statement uh, said this. Uh, we will continue to monitor closely how Russia responds to international calls for an explanation of the hideous poisoning of Mr. Navalny. We remain strongly committed to our support for democracy, the rule of law and human rights in Russia to bolster our support to the Russian civil society. And Alex, just briefly on this then, uh, support to Russian civil society. We'll be coming on to that again in a little sec, in a little minute, not with Russia, but with Iran and uh, Nagari, uh, Zagari Ratcliffe, uh, Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe, sorry. But, but this idea of bolstering support to the Russian civil society, this is international interference in a nation state. Yes, that term has undergone a complete evolution. It was coined in the Enlightenment. Um, Adam Ferguson and uh, Friedrich Hegel wrote about civil society in their political theory, and all they meant at that stage was the thing of the nation, uh, the part that can have a dialogue with government and legislators. Uh, but from about the end of the Cold War onwards, uh, in FCO circles, as I saw it taking shape, the, the, the new definition of civil society was the pro-Western actors embedded in the government's legal systems and educational systems of our target countries. Uh, they are being softened up to think along our lines, really. So uh, civil society work uh, by British and American diplomats in particular, and all the people whom they fund secondhand, uh, is, a, is a shorthand way of saying winning hearts and minds. So that is very much, well, contrary to the spirit, if not the letter of many international law agreements on non-interference. Yes, OK, well, before we come on to uh... Uh, Ms. Zagari Ratcliffe, Brian, let's uh, come on to behaviour change and, and uh, psychological attack. Now, on Monday, uh, you had uh, Andrew Bridge, an MP, on the programme, uh, at least a quote from him. Uh, you're muted again. Any apologies for that? Just being very careful <laughs> with the sound from this end. Um, yes, we, we covered him because he, he was uh, reported 
Um, it was in the Daily Mail, if I remember correctly. And he was pointing out that brainwashing, as he called it, was being used on civil servants. And some 33,000 civil servants had gone through um, essentially diversity training, which might explain why they've got such huge support for Black Lives Matter. But Andrew Bridgen MP was quite rightly calling this out as brainwashing and saying it was dangerous. Now, I covered it. Uh, what I also did is I sent him an email and uh, said to him, well done for speaking out on this, because it's not easy to stand up and talk about this. But I also sent him a package of information about um, behavioural reframing. So one, one of the things I sent him was the Mindspace document, but I also linked him into specific UK column articles where we've been warning about the use of applied behavioural psychology. Now, by sheer coincidence uh, today, what do I find? Actually, from a few days ago, but uh, a gentleman's very kindly sent me this, which is the little book of green nudges. And what does it have to say about itself? Well, of course, it says that it's 40 nudges to spark sustainable behaviour on campus. This is brainwashing. This is applied psychology. And if you press the magic button, we should get a bit more information. Uh, go for it again, Mike, because who have we got? We've got the UN Environment Programme. We've got our old friends, the Behavioural Insights team. We've got an organisation called Grid Arendel. I had no idea what that was that was until uh, a few hours ago. And we'd also got the Youth Education Alliance. So if we go on to the next slide, we can read about the grid. Uh, if you press the button, we can expand that text a bit. And what have we got? A Grid Arendel is a non-profit environmental communication centre based in Norway, we transform environmental data into innovative science-based information products and provide capacity building services with the aim of strengthening management capacity and motivating decision makers to make positive change. We collaborate with the UN Environment Programme and other partners around the world. Well, that's quite a statement for a company that's sticking its nose into student education, because that's what they're doing. But let's have a look at their partners. Well, in fact, there are so many that it's impossible to see. So I've put a tag in there. There are too many partners around too many places of the world to actually read who they are. And I'll encourage any of our viewers or listeners who's got a bit of capacity to get on and look at this organisation, and perhaps you could help us out with who they are. Um, have a look at this next one, because this is the Youth and Education Alliance. And what do we find? Well, we find that this is itself the UN Environment Programme. So we've got the UN working with this global organisation based in Norway that's telling us it's going to transform our lives, it's going to change us. Who are they? Are they accountable? To whom are they accountable? We don't know. But what we do know is this is being driven through the UN. And if we move on to the next bit, just to be absolutely clear, who's driving this? Well, if we look at acknowledgements, we see that Jessica uh, Barker and Tony Park of the Behavioural Insights team were actually the author of this UN document. So now we haven't just got some little organisation working next to the British Cabinet Office. 
We've got an organisation working hand in glove with the Cabinet Office and the United Nations. Maybe just before I start to look at people involved, Alex, it's becoming very, very clear that we no longer have a government in the traditional sense. We have got a cabal that's working hand in glove with very powerful global organisations, be it the UN or others, uh, George Soros Open Society, for example, uh, but they're driving an agenda which is simply not discussed uh, for the British people in Westminster. They are certainly at the level of the top of the civil service, Brian. They're some of the very few people around who get to write their own remits and their own terms of reference because, of course, the civil service code is written by the civil service. The code of ministerial responsibility, which has been in the news again because of uh, international law issues regarding Brexit, uh, that too is written by the civil service. Uh, so they're writing effectively their own uh, sheet of rules. And so you can't really call it uh, a rule of law. It is going by, you don't know, what a small group of people wish to do, to sail, to steer the organisation. I particularly latched on to that word science-based, that adjective in the middle of what you read out in Grid Arendal's self-description of what it does. Um, science-based is a word which has cropped up to my mind for the first time in 2020 in any meaningful sense, and uh, seems to mean uh, pseudo-scientific but with a positive slant you know sciency as an adjective would be another way of saying it you know enough science in there to to frighten people into submission yes so we we've got we haven't got genuine policies being debated in westminster and and then those are enacted for the benefit of the british people we we've got these agendas which are being put forward you described it as a narrative where people are being steered deceived, nudged into what, what this cabal wants us to do. Now, have a look at how they describe the techniques themselves. Mike, if you bring the next one up, uh, we can have a look here, because they talk about the science, really, that you've mentioned, Alex. Behavioural science shows that a simple nudge towards everyday greener decisions, here we are, in, into your field that you mentioned earlier, Mike, because everything's to do with this massive environmental change. Towards everyday greener decisions is a powerful spur to environmental action for students and other campus community members. Techniques such as gentle persuasion, changing the framing of choices, resetting default options, or harnessing social influence can all lead towards sustainable conduct and an eco-friendly campus. So these people are saying, don't think for yourselves, we are gonna gently reframe, nudge you to do the things that we want. This is immensely dangerous. If we go to the next one, we can see where this goes in a deeper sense. So let's have a look at what it's got to say here. I might need a bit of help uh, reading. Now, it okay, says nudging it's... is... Okay. I, I can just about do it. Sorry, age is cropping up here. I have to, have to put some thick glasses on. Nudging is based on an understanding of the psychology of decision-making. Our brains have limited access to make sense of a world that's complex and uncertain, which means that we use um, shortcuts that make our behaviour 
Um, sorry, you'll have to give me a bit of help with this. Okay, it says, it says, which means that we use mental shortcuts that make our behavior highly context dependent. For example, do what everyone else is doing or take the easiest option. Also, a lot of our behavior is automatic as we follow ingrained routines or act on autopilot. Right, so they're, they're setting the scene there. But if we go to the next paragraph, we see the danger really coming out. I think, can I manage this one? No, I'll, I'll, I'll give read it, it Brian. So, oh, go, so it says, ahead. with, with knowledge of these cognitive processes, we can make changes to the options people have, uh, brackets the choice environment, in order to encourage certain choices, or we can explicitly design choices to harness or overcome common cognitive biases. Right. So look at the language here, because this is straight into, if effectively, back into Black Lives Matter, where people are being told you can't make decisions about race, for example, because you've got all these biases. But don't worry, we can fix your biases. And they are boasting here in, in line with the Mindspace document that we can make changes to the way people are behaving and thinking. So what do we actually know about the moral values of Inger Anderson, the executive director of, of the UN um, educational team, or David Halpern, the behavioral insights team? We know nothing about these people, and yet they're getting into the minds of our young university students in, in, in order to put their values across. Um, I, I'm going to give lots of credit to um, Andrew Bridgen for challenging this stuff. And I'm going to say I sent him that email. I'd encourage as many other of our viewers and listeners to do the same, uh, because we need to stop this very, very dangerous brainwashing of the British public. Um, OK, well, let's uh, let's move on now to uh, Naga uh, Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe. Now, of course, she's in prison, has been for the last few years in Iran, um, but she's now facing new uh, New, new charges. Now, the charges have not been made public, so it's not clear what those uh, will be. Uh, the Foreign Office is calling the new charges indefensible and unacceptable. Uh, and of course, she was uh, being, uh, she's in prison uh, for attempting, the Iranians have uh, decided for attempting to undermine the Iranian state. Now, at the time, uh, she was working for Thomson Reuters Foundation uh, and Monica Vila, uh, who is, was or is the chief operating officer at Thomson Reuters Foundation said these charges, this is the charges uh, a few years ago, these charges are linked to her work at BBC Media Action and at the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Uh, this is a complete invention as the Thomson Reuters Foundation doesn't work in Iran and has no programme or dealings with Iran. Now that's, that was the position of the Thomson Reuters Foundation at the time after she was found guilty. Uh, and. Uh, well, the unfortunate thing was that Boris Johnson, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, uh, made a statement uh, in the House of Commons at, at a select committee uh, saying that uh, when we look at what Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was doing, she was simply teaching people journalism, as I understand it, at the very limit. So that's what he said at the time. Uh, he was heavily criticised for making this statement at the time because it basically blew uh, any chance that she had of release from prison. Uh, and in fact, uh, Monique Vila from the uh, Thomson Reuters Foundation tweeted out at th that Boris Johnson must correct that statement. Uh, whatever is at stake, she said, should be paid attention by the British, by the UK government. Um, well, of course, Thomson Reuters Foundation, what is that all about? Well, it's very similar to BBC Media Action. Uh, they, they create exactly the same type of thing, uh, 
journalism training and so on. And as we were pointing out in Monday's program, BBC Media Action at the time quite op open about what they were doing. They were saying uh, that they had been working in 2004 with individuals in Syria, in this case, uh, who wanted change. They were going to be drivers of that, that they were working with media development work, uh, that, that that was done in Syria predicated upon the idea that there can be change with, with it, from within. You have an authoritarian regime and you find out who the reformers are within that and you work with them. Um, so um, maybe I could ask Alex uh, what, what your thoughts are on this because uh, she has been convicted in Iran of uh, attempting to destabilize the state. She's now facing new charges um, and she was working for two organizations in her past career uh, which have openly been involved in so-called media development. And we, when we look at the, the issue of media development and we look at the behavior of the Foreign Commonwealth Office as well, um, of course, they have a, a section on media development and what they call counter disinformation. Uh, and this comes back to this notion of supporting civil society in, in countries. This is an extension of British soft power. And so um, it's, it's very hard to... to uh, to see the justification for saying that, that uh, Ms. Zagari Ratcliffe was just a journalist uh, when she was working for these types of organizations? It's pretty simple when, they, when it comes down to it, Mike, isn't it? A journalist reports things that happen and a journalist trainer tells people how and what to report. It's a complete reversal of the lens or the... And, um, in this one question of what yeah alex i'm sorry i'm afraid we i'm afraid we've lost you there because uh ah you're back try try again no i'm sorry we've we've lost you definitely uh brian uh what are your thoughts on this well i i think it's pretty clear clark cut i know what alex uh, was saying there was was correct he, he's saying the thing is when you go in and train people about journalism what you're actually going to do is train them about journalism within your frame of reference and if you're the bbc we know that this is just a huge propaganda machine so if we're kind to the lady she got mixed up in these organizations did she really believe in what she was doing from a sense that uh, she knew she was going into a country and helping to destabilize it. I'm going to say, I reckon she probably didn't. But was she, was she working for organizations that know that this is what they're really about? Absolutely. And BBC Media Action, despicable as a charity, uh, going in and helping to destabilize and create the violence in Syria. Absolutely despicable. So. Yeah. Um, she's in hot water, but um, she's been put there as a result of these very dubious actions by BBC Media Action and Thomson Reuters, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, OK, well, look, we're well over time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I'm going to say thank you very much, Brian, for joining us and Alex as well. Uh, we will be back. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back at the usual time at 1 p.m. on Friday and Patrick Henningsen will be with us. Uh, we hope to see you then. Bye-bye.